Well, good morning. It's good to see you here as we've gathered together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and hear from His Word. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. We're going to continue with the theme of prayer uh, that we began last week. And today we're looking at verses 5 to 13. So Luke chapter 11, verses 5 to 13. And if you would, please follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 5. And Jesus said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened." What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together as we consider God's Word. Father, we ask for Your help now, even as we hear the Lord Jesus say that the Father will give the Holy Spirit to His people. We recognize our need for the Holy Spirit's help this morning, that He would illuminate our hearts and minds, that He would give us understanding on what it is that You have spoken and taught to us here in the Gospel according to Luke. So we ask, Father, for the Holy Spirit's help. We ask You, God, to be faithful to Your Word. You tell us, Lord, that the Holy Spirit will lead us into all understanding. And so we pray now, Father, on the basis of Your Word, that You would do just that. That You would open our eyes and increase our faith, Father, and strengthen our hearts to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Father, please keep me from error. Please give all of us discernment that we would hold fast to the truth what strange days we live in, God. We need help to hold fast to the truth. So we pray for Your grace now. In Jesus' name, Amen. Friends, to grasp the weight of this passage, we need to begin by reminding ourselves about the character of God. What do we believe about the living God according to the Scriptures? We believe that the living God is holy and immortal the One who dwells in unapproachable light. We believe the living God is righteous and pure, the One in whom there is no darkness at all. We believe the living God is sovereign and almighty, the One whose purposes can never be thwarted, the One whose hand can never be stopped. And we believe the living God is transcendent and exalted, the One who is not bound by any constraints of space or time or weakness, the One who knows No limitations. Friends, this is the character of God as His Word reveals Him to be. 
holy, immortal, transcendent, awesome, mighty, sovereign, pure, exalted. This is the character of God as His Word reveals Him to be. And even that brief description should cause us to ask, who can compare to this great God? As the psalmist says, the earthquakes, the seas roar, and the mountains tremble at the voice of the living God. That's the God whom you stand before today. And at the same time, this holy, immortal, transcendent, awesome, and exalted God is the one to whom we pray. That's a staggering connection, isn't it? The God who upholds the universe is the same God to whom we bring our requests. The God who dwells in unapproachable light, Paul says, is the same God we are commanded to approach. Perhaps you've never considered this question, but how exactly do we do that? In what manner ought we to pray? We know that the blood of Christ has brought us near to the living God and therefore we have no condemnation, we have no fear of condemnation, but even still there is this question, what should be our attitude when we approach God in prayer? Should we try to keep our requests to a minimum? Should we limit the time we spend expressing our needs and our fears and our state of mind? Shouldn't the transcendence of God curb our attitude when we approach Him? He is upholding the universe, by the way. Shouldn't there be a buffer on how freely sinners like us express ourselves to the living God? Friends, those are the questions that Jesus deals with here in Luke chapter 11. And astonishingly, what Jesus teaches in this text is that the answer to all of those questions is no. We should not try to keep our requests at a minimum when we approach God. We should not see the transcendence of God as a buffer that keeps us at arm's length. According to Jesus, our attitude in prayer should be entirely the opposite. Instead of fear, we should pray with freedom. Instead of reservation, we should pray with boldness. And instead of walking on proverbial eggshells, we should have confidence that our voices are welcomed by God just the same way that a voice of a child who cries out in the night is welcomed by his Father. That encouragement, friends, is really the heart of this passage. How we ought to pray. You may remember last week that we looked at verses 1-4 to where Jesus taught us the theology, the truth that upholds all believing prayer. As Christians, our prayers rest on God's love. They focus on God's glory. They depend on God's provision. And then we pray that way together as God's people. That was the theology of prayer that Jesus taught us last week. In this week's passage, however, Jesus shifts focus a little bit. Jesus moves from the theology of prayer to the practice of prayer. And His aim is what we were just considering a moment ago. Here, Jesus is teaching us what our attitude in prayer ought to be. How exactly should we approach God when we pray? What should mark our prayers in practice? That's the Lord Jesus' aim in these verses. And friends, the result is a remarkably encouraging call to pray with boldness, with expectancy, and with confidence 
before the living God. So, far from being timid in prayer, Jesus calls us to embrace prayer as one of the greatest privileges that is given to us as the sons and daughters of God. So that's going to be our aim this morning. We always want to make the aim of the passage the aim of our message. We always want to preach what the passage means as the point of our sermon. So Jesus' aim is to encourage us with an attitude in prayer. That's going to be our aim. There are three marks in particular that Jesus identifies that should frame our attitude in prayer. One focuses on boldness, one on expectancy, and one on confidence. So let's focus on these marks that should shape our attitude in prayer so that we might pray as we ought. First of all, we start in verses 5-8 to where Jesus teaches us that Christians should pray with an attitude of unashamed boldness. Christians ought to pray with an attitude of unashamed boldness. Beginning in verse 5, Jesus tells a parable. One that draws on the expectations of hospitality that were common in His day. The setting of the parable is straightforward, but the details make for a humorous situation. In fact, as readers of this passage, we're meant to appreciate what a crazy scenario this is that Jesus describes. So look at verses 5-6 to where Jesus lays out the setting. A man, whom we're going to refer to as the host, a man receives a guest at his home. But surprisingly, the guest comes in the middle of the night. And that means the host is caught off guard, it seems. He has no bread. He has no provisions to offer his guest. That may not sound all that bad to you, but in Jesus' day, that would have been a serious problem. If somebody shows up at your house in first century Israel, no matter the time of day, you were expected to feed that person. And if you didn't feed them, then you were considered to be a really bad neighbor and pretty much everyone else in town was going to hear about that relatively soon. So considering the circumstances, the host here does something rather bold. Desperate times call for desperate measures as the saying goes. So the host goes to his next door neighbor and he knocks on this guy's door in the middle of the night and he asks for a few loaves of bread. That's extreme. But again, the host is desperate. So much so that he's willing to wake his neighbor up in the middle of the night to ask for some help. Then comes the twist though. Verse 7. Look at what Jesus says. The neighbor is unwilling to help. It's the middle of the night. And he's not getting up to give his friend a few loaves of bread. You can hear the neighbor's reasoning in the verse. It's too much trouble. My kids are already in bed. I'm not getting up. It's too much trouble. In Jesus' day, most families slept in the same room, which is why the neighbor says, my kids are already in the bed. If you've got little kids, you can appreciate this. If the neighbor gets up, he's probably going to wake up the kids. And when he wakes up the kids, he's going to wake up his wife. And then everybody's going to be awake and they're going to have to do the whole bedtime routine again and have three drinks and two stories and go to the bathroom and I'm not getting up. I'm not getting up, what the guy says. I'm not going to give you any bread. That's the point of verse 7. He's unwilling to help. So the host is stuck. But not really. Jesus again gives the payoff. All of the craziness comes together in verse 8. Notice what Jesus says. And since the pronouns are a little confusing in our translation, I'm going to supply the names for the characters when we read verse 8. So look again. Jesus' payoff, verse 8. I tell you, 
Though the neighbor will not get up and give the host anything because he is his friend, yet because of the host's impotence, the neighbor will rise and give the host whatever he needs. So, the crazy midnight scenario is resolved. The host gets his bread. The neighbor goes back to sleep. What does this have to do with prayer? Remember, Jesus is teaching about prayer. So what's the takeaway? What's the point about prayer? Well, as you can tell, in verse 8, the key is that word impotence. Impotence. That word is hard to translate. It's only used here in the New Testament. It's the only place it's ever used. A lot of English translations render it as persistence. And while that's not entirely wrong, it's not the best sense for the parable. The idea is something more like shamelessness. Or we might say, a kind of boldness that pays no regard to appearances or social conventions. It's the kind of boldness that says, I know this is going to put you in a bind, but I'm going to ask you anyway. One commentator says that it's similar to our saying that a person has a lot of nerve. you got a lot of nerve. And I think that's the best interpretation here in verse 8. The host in the parable, has a lot of nerve to knock on his neighbor's door in the middle of the night and ask for bread. But friends, that's the key to the entire parable. Because the host is so unashamedly bold, he gets what he needs. Because he has a lot of nerve, he gets the bread. Again, you've got to appreciate the culture of Jesus' day. Once the host goes next door and knocks on his neighbor's front door, the obligation now shifts to the neighbor. The neighbor doesn't want to appear stingy. The neighbor doesn't want to be gossiped about in the neighborhood. He doesn't want to have a scene on his front yard in the middle of the night. So the neighbor gets up and he gives him the bread, but he does so only because the host had the nerve to go over there and knock on the door. You see? That's the effect of the host's unashamed boldness. Because he had the nerve to ask, the neighbor gives him what he needs. By his unashamed boldness then, the host gets the bread. Friends, I hope that explanation makes sense. It's a, it's a difficult parable to interpret. But perhaps the greater difficulty is recognizing the application that Jesus wants you to make. You may have already put the pieces together in your mind. Jesus is saying that Christians ought to pray with the same kind of unashamed boldness before God. Or to use the language of our day, we ought to show some nerve in prayer. We ought to show some nerve when we pray. And, here, and here's why, friends. This is easy to miss, so you have to follow Jesus' logic. If even unwilling neighbors respond to boldness, then how much more will a good heavenly Father respond to boldness Himself? Do you see the logic? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. The point is not that God is an unwilling neighbor. That's not the point. In fact, the point is just the opposite. God is of an entirely different character than the unwilling neighbor. So if bold requests work on cranky neighbors, then imagine what bold requests do with God. That's Jesus's. Application. That's the payoff. Pray with nerve, Jesus is saying. Pray with unashamed boldness. Yes, God is transcendent and holy and awesome and immortal, but He's also your Father in Jesus Christ. 
if you're a Christian. So even if it's the middle of the night and you need bread, go knock on God's door, show the nerve, and ask Him for what you need. Listen, I know that we want to be reverent when we pray. We try to be reverent in everything we do in our service. I know that we want to be reverent when we pray. And reverence is always a good motive in the Christian life. But let's remember something, friends. Boldness is not the same as irreverence. They're not synonymous with one another. Having a godly sense of nerve is not the same as demanding that God serve us. You can honor the Lord in your heart while also making very bold requests of Him. You can do both. For example, our church could really use a long-term facility of our own, if you haven't noticed. So the elders have been praying, God, for the glory of Your own name, please give us a building of our own. Please do the unthinkable and provide us with a facility. On paper, we cannot afford what we would need, but you own the cattle on a thousand hills. So we're asking you to provide for your glory, for the sake of the gospel, for the good of the church. Please give us a facility, we ask. Notice we're not demanding anything of God. We're not questioning God. We're not presuming to know better than Him. But at the same time, we're going to ask. We're going to ask, and we're going to be bold in doing so. Show some nerve in prayer. Perhaps the best example of praying with this kind of unashamed boldness is Jesus Himself in the Garden of Gethsemane when He's facing the cross and He says to God, think about this, Jesus is the Son of God, the Eternal One, who is like the Father in every way. He is the Son who entered into an eternal covenant of redemption with His Father to redeem a people for Himself. And that Son says in the garden, Father, if it possible, make this cup pass from Me. Yet not what I will, but what You will. You see? That's boldness, friends. That's some nerve in prayer. And if that's how Jesus prays, that's how we ought to pray Two is to pray with unashamed boldness. What about you? What about you? What's the need in your life? What's the area in your life where you ought to be praying with some nerve? Maybe it's an issue of the heart and you need to unashamedly pray with boldness that God would cause you to grow. Are you growing? Maybe it's an unbelieving friend or family member who has rejected the Gospel time and time again. Pray and ask God to save that person. Maybe it's a financial or a physical need. With boldness, ask God to provide. The the point here is not the specific request. It's the attitude with which you pray. Timid prayers run the risk of implying that God is unwilling or that He's stingy. But brothers and sisters, God is our Father in Christ Jesus, so let's pray with boldness. In fact, that's that's the main takeaway from Jesus' parable. The way that we honor God's character as our Father is by praying boldly in Jesus' name. The way that we glorify God's power and His holiness and His transcendence is by praying for what God alone can do. Timid prayers imply that we serve an unwilling God. But bold prayers tell the truth about God. That He alone can answer this need that we face. 
So therefore, friends, we ought to pray with unashamed boldness. We ought to show some nerve in prayer. Now, you may be thinking that that idea of unashamed boldness still sounds kind of vague. How exactly do we pray like that? I'm not sure what I should do. That's a good question. And Jesus, anticipating our question, gives us the answer in verses 9 and 10. This is the second mark that should frame our attitude in prayer. Christians ought to pray with an attitude of expectant faith. Christians ought to pray with an attitude of expectant faith. Friends, in the flow of the passage, verse 9 is the application of the parable. So notice again Jesus' takeaway, verse 9. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So Jesus uses three verbs to describe our praying. You You can see it there in the passage. Ask, seek, and knock. Now the point is not that there are different kinds of praying, sometimes asking, sometimes knocking, sometimes seeking. Now, the three verbs should be taken together to communicate one thing. Jesus wants His followers to pray and keep praying. Ask, seek, and knock. Pray and keep praying. You pick the verb, Jesus says. Ask, seek, or knock. You pick the verb, but whatever you pick, keep doing it. Pray and keep praying. So, I, just, I want to pause here and, and focus on this for a moment. Pray and keep praying. When it comes to faithful prayer, perhaps the most important characteristic is persistence. Persistence. Pray and keep praying. Pursue persistence. This is important because many Christians make the mistake of prioritizing moments of power over seasons of faithfulness. So we think, I haven't prayed in three months. I'm going to pray for four hours and that's going to be enough. But then I'm not going to pray for another three months. No, Jesus would say, skip the four hours and just pray every day for the next three months. Right? We tend to prioritize moments of power over seasons of faithfulness. And we mistakenly think that meaningful prayer results in some kind of otherworldly experience with God or some kind of unique display of power. But then when those moments don't happen, we assume that we're the problem or that our prayers are just too weak or that we're not good at praying. You ever thought something like that? I know I have. But friends, that kind of thinking is a mistaken mindset. Effectiveness in prayer is not manifested primarily in moments of power. Let me say that again. Effectiveness in prayer is not manifested primarily in moments of power. It's manifested in seasons of faithfulness. Praying over the long haul. It comes through learning to labor in prayer. It's the Christian who prays and keeps praying. That's what Jesus is talking about in verse 9. It's not the powerful in prayer that we should emulate. It's the persistent. In fact, it's the persistent who is powerful. Pray and keep praying. Praying. So, if there's one practical takeaway for your Christian life this morning, this is it. If you just want the one take home from the whole passage, this is it. Aim for persistence in prayer. Aim for persistence. Don't try to conjure up more power. Don't think you've got to spend hours piling up words. 
so that God will hear you. No, prioritize seasons of faithfulness day by day. Ask, seek, and knock. Pray and keep praying. That's Jesus' call. Persist in prayer. Stick with it. At the same time, there's another aspect to persistent praying that we need to, be see, that we need to see. We should be careful not to confuse persistence with perfunctory. There is a kind of prayer that just goes through the motions, but without much hope. So in verse 10, Jesus gives us a clarification that teaches us to pursue persistence, but to do so with an expectant attitude. Notice verse 10. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Now, in the flow of the passage, verse 10 is the foundation for verse 9. Verse 9 is built upon the truth of verse 10. Why should we persist in prayer? Because, verse 10, persistence leads to answers. When we ask, God responds. When we seek, we find God's provision. And when we knock, God opens the door. You see, Jesus wants us to remember that God does in fact answer prayer. God does in fact answer prayer. He is not far off. He's not distant. He's not too busy to hear your request. He's not so exalted that our prayers fail to reach His heavenly throne. No, friends, God answers prayer. That's the reason that we ought to persist in praying because on the basis of Jesus' Word, we should be expectant that God will answer us. God answers prayer. Perhaps you need to hear that this morning, friends. Maybe your prayer life has grown cold because deep in your heart you've concluded that God isn't actually listening. I said last week, oftentimes our problem in prayer is that our view of God is too small. This is another instance of that. Sometimes our coldness in prayer indicates that we don't really believe that God will answer. Sure, you might not say it that bluntly, but if you're honest, that's what you're thinking. You struggle to pray because you're struggling to believe that God will answer. And so if that's you today, I would encourage you to listen to the words of Jesus. There's no greater authority on the nature of God than Jesus. And Jesus says God answers prayer. That's not my view. That's not my interpretation. That's Jesus telling you on the basis of His own Word that God answers prayer. And friends, you can take Jesus at His Word. Remember, Jesus lived His life in obedience to God's Word. He laid down His life to fulfill God's Word. He is God's Word made flesh for us and for our salvation. There is no greater authority than Jesus. So believe Him. Believe Him when He says that the Father answers prayer. How do I believe Him, you say? How do, I, how do I demonstrate that I believe Him? Simple. You pray. You pray. Remember, prayer is a God-centered act of faith. So how do you demonstrate that you take Jesus at His Word? Pray! Pray! That's how you demonstrate your trust in Jesus. You pray persistently and you pray expectantly Believing that God will answer us when we pray. Before we go on to the final
final mark, which is where we're headed in just a second, there's a pastoral question that we ought to answer from verses 9 and 10. I just told you that God answers prayer. So some of you are probably asking this question. If you're not asking it today, then you've asked it in the past. And if you haven't asked it in the past, then you're going to ask it someday. The question is this. What about those times when God doesn't answer my prayer? You just told me that God answers prayer. What about those times when God doesn't answer my prayer? That's a very good question. There are times when we pray persistently and expectantly, and yet, God does not seem to answer us. Some of you have probably been praying for things for a number of years, and still, it seems that all you've received is the silence of God. That's hard. And I want you to hear me say that. Those are difficult moments in the Christian life. So I'm going to tell you three things here in just a second. But as you listen to these three things, I don't want you to hear me as saying them uh, heartlessly or coldly. It is hard when you receive the silence of God for your prayers. And I understand that it is. But there's a different way to think about it than that God is ignoring us. So what do we do when it seems that God doesn't answer us? What do we do? Well, first of all, we ought to remember that verse 10 is not a guarantee that God will answer in the way that we want. Verse 10 is not a guarantee that God will answer in the way that we want. God is not a cosmic vending machine. You don't put in the 25 cents of prayer and hit A2 and get the Snickers bar. That's not how God works. So it's not a guarantee that He will answer in the way that we want. Prayer does not make God our servant. Let me say that again. Prayer does not make God our servant. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask. We pray with unashamed boldness, but even still, verse 10 is not a guarantee that God will answer according to our will. Second thing we ought to remember, God's timing is not our timing. God's timing is not our timing. Sometimes, what appears to be slowness to us is actually God preparing us to appreciate fully the sweetness of His answer. In other words, God might quote-unquote delay to use our perspective, but it's because He has a deeper purpose that He wants to accomplish in our lives. So think about, think about Hannah in 1 Samuel. For years, Hannah prayed for a child, and for years, God waited. Was that waiting pointless? No, not in the least. It was through the waiting that God prepared Hannah to receive the depth of His kindness in the gift of her son, so much so that when she received the son, she gave him right back to God. You see? I like to think that without the years of waiting, that worshipful response in her heart would have been a little less likely. God's timing is not our timing. So, we should be very slow to judge the Lord's providence by our timetables. We should be very slow to judge the Lord's providence by our timetables. Even in delays, the Father is carrying out His purpose for our good. His timing is not our timing. Final thing we ought to remember when, God, when it seems that God doesn't answer. God often answers our prayers better than we have prayed them. God often answers our prayers better than we have prayed them. And what I mean by that is 
We may believe that what we've asked for is what we most need, but God knows better. (laughs) So He gives us what is best, what is good, even when it doesn't match with what we've asked for. Friends, that's not God holding out on us. That's mercy. Right? It's mercy. God often answers our prayers better than we have prayed them. And therefore, even when it seems like a no to us, we can have confidence that we are receiving the kindness of God. We are receiving His kindness. In fact, God's kindness is what closes the passage. Look at verses 11-13. to It's the final mark that should frame our attitude in prayer. Jesus tells us that Christians ought to pray with an attitude of gospel confidence. Gospel confidence. We ought to pray with that kind of attitude. Think back to verse 2 from, from last week. Look, if, you just, if you have your Bible there, look back up in verse 2. Where does Jesus teach us to start in prayer? With God as our Father. That address, Father, is a summation of all the Gospel truth that we confess as the church. That God has predestined us for salvation through Jesus Christ. That He has redeemed us through the blood of Christ. And that He's adopted us as His sons and daughters to be heirs with Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where we start in prayer. That's why we start with Father because it's a summation of all that God has done for us in Christ. It's a summary of God's Gospel kindness to His children. Now notice where Jesus closes this section on prayer. With the same truth. He closes with the goodness of God, our Father. Don't miss that, friends. When it comes to prayer, the truth that bookends our praying is the grace of God, our Father. And that should give us a sense of confidence as we pray. So notice the argument that Jesus makes here. Verses 11-13. to Once again, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Jesus highlights how earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to their children. Verse 11, when your son asks you for a fish or for an egg, you don't give him a snake or a scorpion. Fish and eggs were staples of a first century diet. So the child, in verse 11, is asking his dad for nourishment. I'm hungry, dad. Give me something to eat. And Jesus' point is that even earthly fathers won't give their children harmful things in return. In fact, if a man were to give his child such harmful things, that man would rightly forfeit the title of father. Why? Because we, by nature, know what fatherhood entails. It requires giving of yourself for the good of your children. And that's the reality that Jesus plays on in verses 11 and 12. Even earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to their children. Then comes the greater point, verse 13. Listen again to Jesus and hear the confidence that should infuse our prayer. Verse 13, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The answer is much more, isn't it? Much more. God is greater than any earthly father. His goodness is inexhaustible and His commitment to His children cannot be broken. What's more, since God is perfect, He never has to fight against His own weakness to do good to His children. That's astounding. 
As much as I love my sons, there are times when my sinful nature gets in the way of my care for them. And I fail to do them good. I fail as a father because I am a fallen sinner. But friends, that's not the case with God the Father. This is so important, especially in a world where the brokenness of failed fatherhood is all around us. God has no imperfections. He never has to fight His own fallen nature. He never has to resist sin. He is perfect and pure and unstained by evil. And that means His fatherhood is always right. His fatherhood is always good. God never fails. He never forgets to call. He never skips town. He never lashes out. And He never walks out. In every situation, no matter the need, God the Father does what is good for His children. When we ask Him for a fish... He doesn't give us a snake because such a thing has never crossed His mind. He has no category for doing such a thing. He has no category for failing as a father. That's staggering. It's not like He has to say, oh, well, you're really trying my patience, but I'm not going to give you that snake. He doesn't do that because He has no category in His brain for being less than good. He never even has to resist the urge to flake off or to fly off the handle. His fatherhood is perfect because He is perfect. And therefore, brothers and sisters, you ought to have confidence before Him when you pray. When you ask for a fish, He doesn't give you a snake. When you ask for comfort, He doesn't leave you in hardship. When you cry out for provision, He doesn't withdraw His hand. When all you can do is groan in prayer, He doesn't say, hmm, try harder next time. That's not what He does. He gives what is good because He is good to His core. He doesn't have to try hard to do you good. He is good. Believe Him, brothers and sisters, and pray with the confidence that can only come from the perfect love of a perfect Father who has never been anything less than perfect. This is how Jesus wants us to pray. This is how Jesus wants us to pray. Notice He says that the Father gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Do you see it? The Father gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Verse 13, that's incredible. The Father doesn't merely give us good things. He gives us Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the summation of all that God is for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Holy Spirit is the summation of all that God is for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Spirit is the seal of our redemption. Ephesians 1.13 The Spirit is the Spirit of our adoption as Sons, Romans 8.15. The Spirit is the gift of full assurance, 1 Thessalonians 1.5. And most astounding of all, the Spirit is the witness to us that we belong to the new covenant in Christ, Hebrews 10.15. Do you see the grace, brothers and sisters? We're not even scratching the surface here. When we ask for a fish, not only does God not give us a snake, He gives us something better! He gives us Himself the Holy Spirit, the One who sums up for us and to us all that God has done for His children in Christ. So there can be no greater confidence than this to know that God the Father gives of Himself by giving us the Spirit in and through the Son. And therefore, brothers and sisters, therefore, 
We pray. That's the impulse of the whole passage. We pray. Because of our gospel confidence through Christ, we can pray with unashamed boldness, making our requests known in full to God. And we can pray with expectant faith, knowing that God answers according to His will. And it all flows from who God has revealed Himself to be in the Gospel, that through Christ, God would make us His own and give us His Spirit as the seal that He has made us His own. Prayer is a God-centered act of faith. But it's not one that flows from our work to reach God. No, it's a God-centered act of faith that flows from what God has done to redeem us in Christ. So let's pray, brothers and sisters. That's, that's the call from this passage. Pray persistently, boldly, expectantly, and with confidence in the goodness of God. Amen? Let's pray together now. Father, help us. We often think far too lowly of You. And we assume that You are much like us. But You're not, Father. You are exalted and almighty and great and good and perfect and pure. And so therefore, we can have confidence before You when we pray. We can pray with boldness and we can pray with expectancy knowing that You hear us because You have already given us Your Son. And in Your Son, You have sealed us with Your Spirit. What else is there for us to receive, God, except every good thing in Christ? So we pray for Your help, Father, that we would be a church that prays. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to repent of our prayerlessness. We pray that You would help us to begin with beholding how good You are in Christ so that we might pray as we ought. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?